You are listening to the Spectral Skull Session, tales from the twilight world of myth, mystery, and imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations or swamp gas. But we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is, and we realize that whatever is out there, the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory. What we bring to the table is small s skepticism, a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story. Okay, let's get started. Good morning, good evening, wherever you may be across the nation or around the world. This is the Spectral Skull Session, and I am your host, Dane. Today is part three of our DMT series, the psychedelic which was known as the businessman's LSD in the 1980s, because you could smoke it during a lunch break and then go back to work without anyone being the wiser. It later came to be known as the spirit molecule during the 1990s because of its seeming ability to put users in contact with an unseen reality. And we've been exploring the question of why some people believe that DMT entities are real. Let's call this DMT fundamentalism, the belief that some, at least some, of the content of the DMT experience should be taken literally, much the same way that certain religious sects around the world take their ancient holy texts literally. We'll see in today's episode that there may be an interesting connection between those two types of fundamentalism. Now, the first episode we did in this series, number 67, Interrogating Psychonautica, That episode explored the hypothesis that DMT users might believe in DMT fundamentalism because they have some good evidence in favor of it. Much the same way that you, dear listener, have good reason to believe that I exist because you hear me on your podcast aggregator app. It's true that there could be no such person as Dane. Maybe I'm a complex artificial intelligence, a construct generated by ChatGPT6. Yet to be on, yet to be released to the public, but you'd certainly, uh, you could defend your belief in my existence. Wouldn't be crazy for you to say I sure thought there was a guy like Dane out there. So could people know about the reality of DMT entities just because they encounter them while on DMT? There in that episode, I said it would certainly seem that you would need to overcome a certain objection in order for your belief in DMT fundamentalism to be rational, and that objection would be, hey. You were on a mind-altering drug, and mind-altering drugs tend to produce illusory experiences, hallucinations, altered perceptions, delusions. Is it possible, though, that something could happen? There could be an experience whose own content is somehow self-authenticating? Maybe I identified five candidate properties of the DMT experience that could possibly overcome that you were on drugs objection. Just to mention a few... One of them was that people who use DMT will describe aspects of the phenomena that come out of the experience. That is, they persist long after the drug has worn off. For example, people reporting that the beings that they encounter while on DMT make a prophecy. They predict the future, and it later comes true. Or people saying that they experienced 
haunting or poltergeist type activities after doing DMT and when they were stone cold sober. These things are certainly expl- certainly very strange, but they, they also seem like the kind of thing that would be uh, authenticating. Like if they really happened, they would really give you some reason to take the experience seriously. I also talked about how many people who are using DMT are reporting that they and another DMT user, usually someone they have a personal connection with, will have the same kinds of experiences, even though they haven't communicated to each other the details. So a person might, for example, have a uh, purple gypsy woman who he encounters every time he's on DMT, who then later is encountered by his friend, who then reports, hey, this purple gypsy woman says that she knows you, that kind of thing. Again, very strange, and you might not want to take it seriously, but you have to admit these are the kinds of things that if they happen to you, you would probably resist the objection you were just on drugs, saying something like, well, no, aspects of this experience happened outside of when I was intoxicated. You can go back and listen to that episode, episode 67, if you want to hear more details about that. We left that hypothesis at 67, and in episode 70, alien information theory began developing another hypothesis. Could it be that the DMT experience compels belief in a fashion that is not truth tracking, that is similar to the neurological alterations caused by brain injuries? After all, there are neurological conditions that involve complex delusions, which seem to be the result of very specific damage to brain structures. For example, I talked about Copgrass syndrome, in which people insist their loved ones have been replaced by imposters. The common medical explanation for Copgrass syndrome is that subjects have lost the ability to have the experience of familiarity, at least with respect to certain faces. They see their husband, who they've known for 20 years, but they don't have the experience of familiarity anymore because of damage to a particular neurological region. They then invent a somewhat complex story. My wife has been replaced by an imposter. Someone is impersonating my wife. Without saying that DMT causes damage to the brain, is it possible that it hyperactivates our experience of certain higher-level properties like complexity? wondrousness, or even realness, causing the person to then invent a complex story about how they encountered something so real, so wise, so wondrous that it couldn't possibly have been a hallucination? Is it even possible that in some cases, the experiences are so powerful that people then feel they need to find meaningful synchronicities outside of the experience of encountering the entity entirely, possibly even parts of the paranormal The claims about paranormal experiences that come after the DMT trip could be part of this hyper need for meaning imposed by the DMT experience. Now, I also said feeding into that hypothesis was my frustration that we read an entire book by a computational neurobiologist who is a DMT fundamentalist himself, and nowhere in that book did he really try to persuade the reader that they should believe in the DMT entities, nor did he even address sort of basic objections that I thought people would have to to DMT fundamentalism. Now, for this episode, I'm leaving those two hypotheses aside. 
In keeping with the writings of American philosopher of science Helen Longino, I think it's perfectly okay to develop two inconsistent hypotheses concurrently. The two can actually mutually inform each other. As we find evidence to disconfirm one hypothesis, it strengthens the other one. And so I'm perfectly happy to let those two ideas just sit there. And I hope you as the audience are also comfortable just letting those two sit there. There's no reason why we have to commit to the existence or non-existence of DMT fundamentalism. At least not just yet. But today's episode is going to take a slightly different track. We're going to explore DMT fundamentalism among people who are conventionally religious. Church-going Christians, practicing Jewish people, and Muslims. If you already believe in the supernatural, it may be much more easy to accept DMT fundamentalism. And you don't even have to do DMT to find DMT fundamentalism plausible. We'll find that people who are already convinced there is a supernatural world are very accommodating when it comes to the reality, or the alleged reality, of DMT entities. Our story today starts with modern-day Egypt. In the past five years, Egyptian authorities have been struggling with an outbreak of pill abuse. There is a pill going around called the Blue Elephant. It was implicated in a high-profile death of an Egyptian actor a few years ago, and also a disturbing case in which a female chemist allegedly killed her own child. Egyptian authorities sometimes seem to be in a state of panic about this drug, the Blue Elephant, as they've had their newspapers print, Blue Elephant is a form of DMT, and it kills 75% of the people who use it. A statistic that is almost certainly made up by people who believe they are following the advice of America's D.A.R.E. program from the 90s, where you exaggerate the ill effects of, of substances. Now, now, whatever Blue Elephant is, it's probably actually not DMT. I looked this up. Orally digested DMT is rendered neurochemically inactive by MAO on the first past metabolism. And yes, they could be mixing DMT with an MAO inhibitor. That's how the shamans of Peru are able to drink ayahuasca. But DMT generally does not kill people. In fact, I could find no cases in which DMT killed anyone, at least not directly. We'll talk about indirectly later. So um, declaring Blue Elephant to be a form of DMT, which the Egyptian government seems to have done, involves a conflation of some things from Egyptian history and culture. First, the ancient Egyptian pharaohs are said to have used a mysterious substance called Blue Lotus that allowed them to visit the gods in the afterlife. But no one today knows what Blue Lotus was. Second, there was a very popular Egyptian movie in 2014 called Blue Elephant about a blue pill that allows a detective to travel through time and space and into parallel dimensions to help him fight crime. pill that the Egyptians are using has apparently ripped off the name Blue Elephant from the movie. But Egyptian clerics have taken to the public news media to warn citizens that the drug Blue Elephant and DMT more generally can create a portal that allows you to contact the jinn, jinn being a supernatural race from Arab folklore, also mentioned in the Quran and Hadith, the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. According to these writings, the jinn exist alongside other created beings, but are normally invisible. Cross-cultural anthropologists sometimes compare the jinn of the Arab world to the fairy people or fae of Irish and more broadly European folklore. 
Egyptian clerics and authorities are warning their people not to use DMT, DMT products, cautioning you that the jinn are tricksters who want to trick you into worshiping them, or perhaps more seriously, take possession of your body. Meanwhile, more liberal Islamic scholars take a different view. Mufti Abu Laith is a YouTuber, Birmingham-based British Pakistani Muslim cleric. He's made multiple videos about DMT on YouTube and maintains that DMT use does not violate the Islamic prohibition on intoxicants. He says it's actually not intoxicating. In his view, it also has no addicting qualities and it does not compromise brain function. Why is this? How can that be when you smoke DMT and then you see strange things and you seem to go to another place? Because you really see real strange things. The things you see are really there, and the place you go is very real. He believes that DMT allows you to engage directly with the spiritual world. And he cites Sufi mystics like Rumi, claiming that they would be on board with this interpretation of DMT. So here you see a kind of social pressure to accept the reality of DMT. Now, as I said, it may it's it's doubtful that this drug blue elephant that is causing so much trouble in Egypt right now really is DMT, if it at least if it kills 75% of the people who take it, or if it kills anyone who takes it. Um and again, if people are ingesting it orally, it's it's um, and getting high, it's almost certainly not DMT, but it almost strengthens the case showing that some people in the developing world are almost falling over each other in a desire to believe that DMT has supernatural properties. It should be noted that the general consensus among Islamic clerics is that DMT is an intoxicant and you should not use it. That's the Islamic world. How about the Christian world? In the modern United States, online Christian communities are increasingly comfortable talking about DMT fundamentalism. Whereas for Egyptians, DMT puts you in contact with the jinn, American Christians are more inclined to believe it's a gateway to encountering demons. In January 2023, the American conservative ran an article by Rod Dreyer titled The Temptation of the Psychonauts. The article headlined with a photo lifted from Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, that final scene where the Nazis opened the Ark and... You know what happens to them, or at least you should watch the movie. Uh, the article introduces the topic of psychedelics and DMT, saying DMT is different from other psychedelics being used therapeutically. It's much more intense. And the article then goes on to say, quote, I do believe that these drugs at times do allow us to perceive things that we cannot normally perceive. But should we be doing that? End quote. Goes on to reveal the existence of an anonymous American professor who says that he used to use DMT in, quote, occult rituals before deciding that the entities he was encountering were demonic and then converting to Christianity. The article also referred me to an internet personality, Owen Cyclops, who is a Christian cartoonist. Cyclops has compiled a sort of personal database of DMT trip reports. He argues that his database provides convincing evidence that using DMT leads to contact with evil entities. And I went through some of the some portion of the database that's available to the public. It's really just stuff that he posted on Twitter. And I found stories of people using DMT and seeing Aztec and Hindu gods without knowing what those gods were. They'd never heard of the Aztec or Hindu gods before. 
I also found stories of people being, for lack of a better term, this is difficult, assaulted by DMT entities. Um, in some cases, they, they operate on you like, boy, like they probe your body. Um, and so actually, if you want to know more about that, I did an interview years ago for this podcast with Dick Kahn, who uh, most of his DMT experiences are just that, having his body invaded. They literally, these beings come and poke into him. He doesn't describe it as painful for the most part, but it's a kind of bodily invasion. Oh, and Cyclops also found some other interesting things. Boy, I mean, it's pretty dark. You know, some cases the the entities say, well, now you're in, you're in hell. And then they're torturing you. Um, in other cases, they tell you to do terrible things that I don't want to repeat on the radio or on the internet. It seems to be becoming fashionable among modern Christians in America to acknowledge DMT fundamentalism, but say the entities are ultimately demonic. Even the popular right-wing documentarian and political commentator Mike Cernovich has been known to say this on Twitter. Don't go do an ayahuasca ceremony in South America because you will contact a being that wants your soul. Well, let's hammer this home with a segment that I lifted from an old episode of Alex Jones's InfoWars. Take a listen to this. <laughs> they believe they're in contact with off-world groups. I mean, this is what the government's into, folks. They're taking the DMT. Whether this stuff's real or not, the globalists think it is, and the elves are telling them, come on, join us, plug in, it's going to happen. Uh, they believe they're communicating with entities. They call them clockwork elves. Uh, Joe Rogan talks about it. he takes it. You see the elves, little green hats. There's a reason all cultures see the elves. I'm not into this. I don't take it. Let's say it's not real. Okay, I don't want national news to say Jones believes in elves. The elite... There's a reason they're all whacked out of their minds. They're taking DMT. The globalists don't believe in Satanism. They believe they're contacting interdimensional aliens through the drug use and through the electronic interface. And they believe, and actually write about, Ray Kurzweil, all of them, that they're going to merge with the machines, blast off into hyperdimensional space. And that's why they're so crazy. If you're a psychiatrist or, and, and, and are hearing this, understand, whether it's real or not, they believe they are in contact with these entities and are being directed by them. That's why they're so evil. And the entities are telling them eternal life, total power, total control, everything you could ever want. Just kill everyone set up a world government build this design we're telling you build what we're telling you build this build this let us through build the hadron collider open the dimensions let us in we're gonna really help you we're friendly little guys <laughs> that's really intense right so he's distancing himself from dmt fundamentalism ostensibly there right by saying i don't really believe this this is what they believe but dmt fundamentalism is part of the Alex Jones eschatology, right? His belief that we are in the end times. The end times are being brought about, being brought about by these um, corrupted elites who believe that they are technocratically gifted and they know what they're doing, but and even also believe they are in communication with higher beings or aliens. But seems like they're being duped. Either way, whether the beings are real or not, they're being duped, right? Um, it may be that this is a kind of eschatology that's actually been floating around for longer. The idea of an elite being misled by the devil. I mean, I guess it kind of sounds like it's right out of Revelations, right? The It's a somewhat updated version of the idea of the beast 
and the false prophet who mislead humanity. So there, as in the case of Egyptian Muslims, we have DMT fundamentalism folding neatly into pre-existing theological beliefs. Now, the most interesting case that I've come across in working on this episode actually comes from Judaism. So uh, this requires a little bit of background. Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of New Mexico, Rick Strassman. He's the researcher who brought DMT and its mystical effects to the attention of the modern world with his book, The Spirit Molecule, a doctor's revolutionary research into the biology of near-death and mystical experiences published in the year 2000. Strassman, he is almost single-handedly responsible for the association between DMT and spirituality, and his book, The Spirit Molecule, was a countercultural hit with his framing of DMT as triggering a near-death experience as having spiritual and mystical dimensions, despite having studied it in a very clinical hospital setting. That book also contained a final chapter that speculated that DMT's effects might need to be explained by invoking dark matter or some other physical force not currently understood. In addition to that, the book contains speculation that DMT might be especially active in the pineal gland, which has long been revered by Western occultists as the location of the third eye. So for all these reasons, the book really took a hit with the American and Western underground. Now, Strassman himself was both a reputed researcher who cut his chops on melatonin before moving to psychedelics, and also a practicing Buddhist with an interest in spirituality who hoped to create a unitive theoretical framework for understanding mystical experiences that would incorporate both the Buddhist peak experiences of things like Kensho and Satori, awakening-type experiences, along with the kinds of things that happen to people when they have what are called breakthrough experiences, so very high-dose experiences of psychedelics like LSD, psilocybin. But over a decade after finishing research that began in 1990, Strassman found that he could not build the unitive framework incorporating DMT. And the reason was simple. Yes, Buddhist and psychedelic experiences usually shared many features in common. They're both very passive. So a very intense experience involves a person not really feeling like they're an active participant, just simply witnessing things. They tend to involve ego loss, a sense of the self dissolving or no longer existing. And they tend to involve a sense of unity, a feeling of oneness. Everything is just one single thing. Maybe everything is love or joy. And that's the whole universe. But the incredibly powerful experiences people were having using DMT or experiencing DMT intravenously in a hospital setting didn't match that. They didn't involve the experience of passivity. People were rather active, interacting with the world that they were projected into. They didn't lose their sense of identity. People said, that, well, I didn't feel like I was in another state of mind at all. And they didn't involve an experience of unity. Rather, people would encounter entities which were very distinct from them and interacted with them in a variety of ways. Strassman says he was puzzled by this for years until he was kicked out of his own Buddhist community. He says they threw him out in part because he was writing about how many people get into Buddhism through psychedelics. Frustrated and alone, he wandered through a bookstore 
where he discovered a book titled The Kabbalah of Envy. Purchasing that book and reading it, he became interested in his old childhood faith, Judaism, and he decided that, wow, when you read the Tanakh, which Christians know as the Old Testament, you discover all kinds of spiritual experiences that are remarkably similar to what happens to people on DMT. The biblical prophets are active. They pray. They encounter God. They negotiate with God's angels. Their sense of self is intact throughout the experience. And the experience involves tremendous amounts of interaction between them and God or God's angels. Strassman wrote a book based on this insight that he had called DMT and the Soul of Prophecy. This book analyzes in great detail overlaps between the prophetic experiences described in the Tanakh and DMT trip reports. Now, I need to note here, Strassman is at pains to remind us that prophecy had a different meaning in ancient Hebrew times. So for the Hebrews, prophecy simply means an encounter with God or God's angels. It does not involve predicting the future, although predictions about the future are often features of the prophetic encounter. In addition to the overlapping features I just mentioned, two others are worth noting as being particularly interesting and I think compelling. One was the rushing experience. So in the Bible, Hebrew prophets often hear a rushing sound or experience a wind or earthquake before the arrival of God or God's angels. Strassman compares this to the early stage of a DMT experience where a person might feel as though the world is moving, shaking, or coming apart. Another very interesting overlap, mechanical and biological ambiguity in the entities. Some of the Hebrew prophets encounter angels that have both animal-like and machine-like qualities. For example, the prophet Ezekiel sees a series of wheels within wheels, all covered in eyes. In another place, an angel is described as having wings, but it doesn't move by flapping. Instead, it translates itself from place to place floating without changing its orientation, more like a modern-day hovercraft or helicopter. Strassman compares this to DMT users, who often say that the entities they encounter have mechanical-like features, despite also being animals. Sometimes they say they're insect-like or insect machines. In some trips, people have talked about living crash dummies or androids. Strassman was so blown away by the unique overlaps between prophetic experiences and DMT trips, he developed a new theoretical model he calls theoneurology. The idea here is that there is a neurological circuit or multiple circuits inside the human brain that exist for the purpose of human spirituality. Strassman believes that there may be a DMT neural pathway. There may be entire networks of neurons inside our brain that literally operate on the molecule DMT using it as a neurotransmitter, much the same way that other neurons will respond to dopamine or serotonin. He's done the research, and yes, indeed, he's discovered that DMT, which previously they thought was mostly uh, accumulating or else created in the pineal gland, is actually created all throughout the human brain. It's created endogenously. It's a naturally occurring chemical in our brains. From an evolutionary psychology perspective, Strassman speculates that we may have evolved a spiritual circuit or multiple spiritual circuits for the purpose of in having experiences that allow us to be more altruistic or more, more community-oriented, which contributes to the survival 
of our kin group or our tribe. As a practicing Jewish man, Strassman speculates, this may be a way to encounter God. Now, he doesn't think that all you need to do is go out and smoke DMT and you will have an encounter of God. He has much more complicated view. So let me take a moment to explain that. Strassman notes that there are some significant discrepancies between biblical prophetic states and DMT trips, even though he found many overlaps. And the main discrepancy that you need to know about is he says, biblical prophetic experiences as written down are very high in semantic content. God or God's angels tells you what he wants you to do. He gives a lot of instructions. In DMT trips, there's much more bizarre lurid imagery and not as much semantic content. So on the basis of this difference, he believes that DMT only partially activates what's required in the human brain for a full-blown prophetic experience. DMT activates what he calls the imaginative faculty, which he says is half of what you need for the prophetic experience. But you also need to develop your intellectual faculty. So he believes that the Hebrew prophets were people who they had very active, imaginative, and intellectual faculties that were properly integrated. He even turns to medieval rabbis who were very curious about prophecy and wondering, is there a way that we can cultivate the gift of prophecy in ourselves? And he turns to their advice where they say things like study, education, doing good deeds, living a good life. These might be the things you need to do to prepare yourself to have an endogenous DMT episode, which then integrates with the intellectual part of your brain to become a real, genuine spiritual experience. Although he says there's one more element, he does believe that you also need to go through peer review. So he says in the Hebrew tradition, you can't just have a rich, mystical type episode and then boom, have everyone accept that, yes, you've met God and God's angels. You'd have to talk to your community and you'd have to get the community to approve. Yes, this was a legitimate spiritual experience and not an encounter with an evil spirit or just something that you made up because you were high on drugs or in the case of endogenous DMT, maybe high on your own supply, right? And for those of you who are interested in having a weird experience without ingesting any exogenous substances, good news from Strassman, he speculates using the principles of neurobiology that just by reading reports of prophetic experiences in the Old Testament, you might be able to activate your DMT circuitry. He seems to suggest that that's been kind of his experience as somebody who is now is practicing the Jewish faith. I don't know if devoutly is the right word, but if you go to his YouTube channel, I was really surprised. His YouTube channel is a bunch of videos of him explaining Bible stories in great detail. I found this to be the most interesting case of DMT-induced DMT fundamentalism, although I want to put a cautionary note here. When I read DMT and the Soul of Prophecy, I did not think that Strassman was saying literally DMT could, in the right circumstances, be an aid for encountering the divine. He distinguishes between top-down and bottom-up theological models, a top-down model being a model where literally there's a being out there and that being picks you out and decides, well, you're going to get a prophecy now, right? I'm going to come and visit you and you're going to have this very intense prophetic experience. That's top-down. The bottom-up model seems to be one where 
these experiences just kind of happen. And then it's the community that adjudicates which experiences are legitimate or not. He is, says that he is more endorsing the bottom-up model, which seems to me to be kind of agnostic about the reality, the sort of metaphysical or ontological substance of these entities. Are they really, in some sense, out there in another dimension? He doesn't seem to be that concerned about it. But this is a guy who starts out a Buddhist. He's a professional psychiatrist, a clinical researcher, and he turns to Judaism and seems to be taking it very seriously as a result of study and use of DMT. And I really like his hypothesis that we have dual faculties that manage our spiritual encounters, right? Intellectual and imaginative. And that you, because that seems to me like that's a falsifiable hypothesis. Like we're either going to find out that DMT underlies some kind of existing circuit in the brain or we're not, right? And uh, if it turns out that it doesn't, then I guess that weakens his case that there's a distinct cognitive faculty, imagination, that plays a role in these spiritual experiences. So you really can see from Christians in modern America, many of whom aren't even doing DMT, just reading about it, and then they have their own interpretation in which it's demonic to Muslims in the developing world who see DMT as a way to encounter the jinn, to Rick Strassman, this researcher who found his way back to Judaism through it. It has a powerful resonance with people who already either believe in the supernatural or have some kind of latent disposition, a pre-existing supernatural framework. And if we return to the original question that defined this three-part series, why are people so convinced about the reality of DMT entities, here we might have another, a third hypothesis that emerges from what we've just looked at. It may just be that DMT stimulates a predisposition to believe that's already built into some of us. As I record this in April 2023, there are movements to legalize or at least decriminalize DMT in New York, California, and Washington state. What effect will increasing use and greater acceptance of DMT have on American culture? In numerous interviews, Dr. Strassman notes that with respect to how DMT alters belief, it seems to have predominantly the effect of reinforcing pre-existing belief systems, which suggests to me that there may, might paradoxically be a surprising level of conservatism that emerges from more widespread DMT use. If you're somebody who's studying the 1960s and 70s, you might think that, well, it leads to a kind of hippie, you know, all is love, the rules don't really matter, man, kind of mindset. But you might be surprised. If your town starts to do DMT, you might wake up one day to find half the communities become Amish, or your school board has decided it's important now to teach Sharia law. Almost anything can happen, and I, for one, can't wait to see what weird effects DMT has on American culture. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Until next time, I have been Dane. Stay strange, stay sane.